welcome to Spiritual Wanderlust, where we explore our interior life in search of the sacred. Many of us will travel the whole world to find ourselves, but here we'll follow those longings within to our spiritual and emotional landscapes. In each episode, we'll talk with inspiring guests, contemplative teachers, embodiment experts, neuropsychologists, and mystics. With a blend of ancient wisdom and modern science, along with a healthy dash of mischief, we'll deep dive into divine intimacy and what it means to be whole. I'm your host, Kelly Deutsch. Welcome to Spiritual Wanderlust, where we explore our interior life in search of the sacred. Many of us will travel the whole world to find ourselves, but here we'll follow those longings within to our spiritual and emotional landscapes. In each episode, we'll talk with inspiring guests, contemplative teachers, embodiment experts, neuropsychologists, and mystics. With a blend of ancient wisdom and modern science, along with a healthy dash of mischief, We'll deep dive into divine intimacy and what it means to be whole. I'm your host, Kelly Deutsch. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Spiritual Wanderlust podcast. I'm Kelly Deutsch, and I have joining me today Laura Michelle Diener. And I'm excited for our conversation today because some of my favorite dialogues are at the intersections of things. You know, I like neuroscience and spirituality, literature and philosophy, ideas and culture. And Laura Michelle has dedicated her life to studying several intersections, uh, medieval history, the role of women, spirituality, literature, fashion, all sorts of amazing things. Uh, she's a professor of medieval and ancient history at Marshall University, where she directed women's studies from 2014 to 21. And Laura Michelle writes not only academically, but also in the creative sphere. She's an upcoming speaker on our Women Mystic School. And Laura Michelle, I'm very excited to have you today. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. I wanted to start our conversation today with a little bit of your background. Um, and I was curious a little uh, to hear a little bit about your own spiritual journey, because I know you mentioned to me that you you grew up Jewish, but you also have this fascination with Christian mysticism. I'm, and I'm curious how those streams kind of have blended together for you over life. Sure. Well, yes, I did. Uh, I did grow up Jewish. I still consider myself Jewish and I practice, you know, a number of the, the major holidays, but um, I've always been drawn, I suppose, to what is different from me, but that I somehow find connection to. So I've always loved the Middle Ages and wanted to study the Middle Ages, but I never wanted to study I don't know, Jewish women in the Middle Ages. I wanted to, I was always drawn to what seemed very different, um, but I was still able to connect to. And I made that connection particularly with uh, women mystics. When I was in graduate school, I discovered Hildegard von Bingen and Catherine of Siena, and I just became entranced by them. And I was entranced uh, by both 
uh, you know, sort of their alien nature, which was fascinating, but also that I still connected with them and found them so human. So it was really through those female mystics in particular uh, that I became very interested in uh, Catholicism and Catholic spirituality. And I became very interested in nuns in particular that started off uh, as a medieval interest and my dissertation focused on uh, medieval nuns in England and France mainly and literature that they wrote and absorbed but um, over the years it became a much larger interest and I became interested in nuns pretty much in every time and place including today which really just enlarged my interest in Catholic spirituality. Mm, yeah interesting. I think for a lot of people, I mean, having spent time in a convent myself, a lot of people find nuns to be this kind of almost like weird otherworldly life. Like you can't be normal. Cause like when I was in Italy, people would always be shocked when I told them, you know, I was in a religious community and they're like, but you're young and you look like a normal person. <laughs> like, and I'm curious what of their lives, especially of medieval women, like what felt relevant to you? Because it seems like, um, especially some of the tales that we get of some of the medieval mystics, they just seem so, you know, either they're like levitating or they have these visions or, you know, something that seems so otherworldly. And I'm curious what makes them um, human. Sure. Well, I will start off by saying that I, it never occurred to me that nuns were sort of strange or different or otherworldly or scary or anything like that. And I think it's because of the, I'm no very inaccurate childhood movies that I grew up with, uh, where they're frequently delightful, like The Sound of Music or The Trouble with Angels. Um, and so they always seem to me, um, you know, as sort of, I don't know, almost fun spirited mm, <laughs> figures. Mm -hmm. um, but what really drew me to them when I was older and sort of studying them academically um, were the sources really that they provided. When you study mm -hmm. medieval women, you're generally dealing with a lack of sources, a lack of text that they wrote, a lack of text that refer to them, even some of the most famous, you know, great medieval queens like Eleanor of Aquitaine, it's really hard to actually find them in a lot of these historical chronicles that their contemporaries wrote. You know, you just catch a fleeting glimpse of them, even though you know they were there. But with nuns, medieval nuns, it's completely different. You get personal letter collections, you get texts that they wrote for each other, you get letters that they wrote to, you know, popes and kings. Hildegard von Bingen is a great example of she just wrote so much um, texts that were meant to be read by a wider public and then letters to, you know, to friends, letters chastising, you know, great, um, you know, great lords um, and members of the church. And so um, they, I guess they sort of sold themselves because I was, uh, you know, I was looking for something to read and they were really the medieval women that offered it. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting that um, women who at least nowadays we consider so set apart mm -hmm. were in some ways kind of the center of a lot of culture and activity back in the middle ages that's um hmm. i'm i'm wondering too what 
If you could tell us a little bit just of the context of what life was like for women in the Middle Ages, because as I read some of these writings of the mystics, whether it's Hildegard or Juliana Norwich or um, Catherine of Siena, any of these, it could be dangerous for them. You know, like Julian, the first woman to write in English that we know of, you know, and at the time, people who wrote in English were sometimes considered heretics because of you know, some of the other things going on. And you know, there were people being burned at the stake and Teresa of Avila was like, had the Inquisition hot on her tail. And you know, all, so it was kind of dangerous to speak your mind. And I'm, I'm wondering what that context was like for these women who had the audacity to be fully who they were and say what they thought and speak to the men in power as boldly as they did. What was that like for them? Well, definitely they had to seek approval. You couldn't just write what you wanted and, you know, everyone, everyone would be happy and you could go about your business. Uh, some of the women who uh, we know so much about today, they somehow found approval or orthodoxy. For example, Hildegard von Bingen, her first book of visions, uh, that was her sanctioned uh, by uh, sort of high-ranking church authorities, which gave her the authority to then uh, continue to write. Um, and had she not been sanctioned, um, possibly she would have done it anyway because she showed herself um, to you know be resistant to authority when it suited her. But uh, that certainly got her a wider audience, which got her um, you know people who are willing to sort of donate money to her monastery, which got her you know, sort of wealthier, important nuns, which then in turn helped her later in political causes. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think the women that we hear about were frequently lucky uh, that. Uh, they managed to find somebody sympathetic to them um, who did in fact have authority. So, you know, even if they weren't always on, you know, the right side uh, later on, they still had that sort of, you know, initial support. So I think that was important. At the same time though, I guess life was just dangerous for everybody all the time. I don't mean because, you know, you're always being watched for, for heresy, but, um, you know, Frequently, you're dealing with, you know, the deaths of people that you love. Catherine of Siena was um, always dealing with, you know, waves of the plague, um, you know, nursing her family. She was dealing with uh, warfare. Uh, just traveling could be could be very dangerous at the time. So they were dealing with her physical threats and you know, I guess more sort of spiritual threats as well. But one thing that you see with many of these writers is that it's far more dangerous and oppressive of, for them to stay silent. Mm -hmm. Hildegard in her first book of visions talks about how she wants to stay silent. She doesn't want to write what comes to her and that makes her ill. It makes her sad. And she feels like she's uh, betraying God by doing that. So probably these women would have continued to write and speak you know, regardless of, of the cost. And certainly with um, some of the, the Beguines and the German uh, French mystics, um, you know, they did sort of pay the price for it, but you don't get any sense that they were 
you know, willing to recant. Um, I was actually just teaching um, in a class the other day about Joan of Arc, and uh, she's not, I guess, the first person we think of when we think of medieval mystics because she wasn't a great prolific writer, but she certainly sort of fits that category. And she does recant at one point and then recants her, her recantation. And she says that she said what she said for fear of the fire. She was afraid of being burnt. Um, and so she, you know, agrees her visions were not from God, you know, that, uh, you know, everything she said was false. And then she realizes she can't do it. And so she has to speak her mind and sort of admit to the, the truth as she believes it, even though she means it's going, she knows it's going to mean a horrible death. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just thinking as as you were mentioning um, Hildegard and I was thinking too of Teresa of Avila and some of the other women that I've been reading, how um, shrewd sometimes they are at kind of like, they know how to pull the strings in the system. Cause I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's what they knew and had to live in all of the time. And so the, mm-hmm. they knew that they had to get kind of the um, spiritual slash political um, kind of backing of someone and how, you know, Hildegard, I can't even remember, was it? Bernard of Clairvaux that she got kind of to like give her a good word to the Pope. And then the Pope was like, she is the Sybil of the Rhine. And everybody's like, oh, okay. (laughs) Like, I guess she's all right then, you know, but to like know who to like, okay, people listen to Bernard, like the Pope will listen to him. So let's go, you know, like plant some seeds over there. Or even, I can't even remember um, what the technical term is for it. Like Teresa of Avila. I don't, it was something like the, feminine rhetoric or something how frequently she would be like oh i'm just a woman a poor stupid woman you know to like say i i'm not learned like don't blame it on me if this you think this is heretical or like in error (laughs) i just thought that was really interesting how how women i'm assuming they did that mostly consciously you know they had to know what they were doing I think so, because it's not exclusive to religious women, women of the church, mystic women. Uh, You see that in a very secular women as well, particularly uh, royal women, Mm. when they are writing to, uh, you know, the Pope at the time, um, or, you know, a very important bishop, someone, you know, who had a great deal of authority, and they're writing uh, with demands or uh, criticisms. They will say what they have to say, but they will couch it in that same language. Um, Forgive me if I speak out of turn, you know, I'm just a humble woman. And usually if they're writing that way, they're doing it on behalf of a husband or a son. Um, So for example, um, Eleanor of Aquitaine, she sort of yells at the Pope in her several letters because he's not doing enough to help her son, Richard, the King of England, who has been held captive. That's sort of the famous story, you know, in all the movies and everything where um, he was off fighting the Third Crusade and then he's being held hostage. You know, he's captured on his way home and she really chastises the Pope, but then she says, you know, forgive me, I'm just a mother and you of all people know the love of a mother for a son and how powerful that is. Meaning, of course, you know, the Virgin Mary's love for her son. So she's, I think, very aware of what she's doing. And you see that kind of language all the time. Mm, Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. um, How sometimes we do have to work within the systems just so we're able to move forward and make any progress, you know, and be Mm -hmm. heard. Um, do you feel like 
is history fairly linear in the role of women and the progressive like rights and latitude and just a space for us to be fully who we are or are there times in history where it kind of goes backwards that's a very good question uh there's been a number of historians who have uh written on that um and you know, argued, I think, rightly that uh, history for women is more circular and up and down. Um, they will cite revolutions, for example. At the beginning of revolutions, frequently women have a lot of say. Um, and then as order is restored, they're frequently shut mm. out. So the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution. Um, and you can see that as well in the Middle Ages, in times of um, weak central authority of governments, in times of chaos and war, frequently women have more authority. And then when you get, um, you know, sort of the rise of established uh central governments or a time of really strong of a really strong church hierarchy sometimes women will get shut out um one sort of comparison would be in very very early medieval france before it was even really france when it was still the kingdom of francia under the merovingians and then it becomes part of the carolingian empire um when you have sort of a split kingdom under uh the merovingians um we see um really just a flowering of uh female scholarship in um in the church uh you see uh really um uh, strong female-led uh, monasteries where there's, um, you know, a number of scribes, there's schools, there's a great deal of writing coming out of them. Um, and then later under uh, the Carolingians and uh, Charlemagne, uh, where we get this sort of really uh, a, a stronger centralized government and more of a strong alliance between uh, the church hierarchy and the government, you see uh, sort of the decline of that system mm -hmm. um, and uh, maybe a strengthening of male monasteries, but a um, sort of, you know, a gradual sort of uh, shutting out of uh, that sort of female intellectual culture. And so really you, you find that I think, you know, mirrored a thousand different ways throughout history. That's definitely mm. not linear. Yeah, yeah, I find that um, the complexity and the nuance adds a lot to just our understanding of um, not only history, but especially of religion, because I think there's this stereotype that like, oh, Christianity in the West has always just suppressed women. And to see that like, not across the board, like there have been, you know, abbesses in charge of like double monasteries where they're in charge of women. And you know, that there's more to the story than just like, oh, Eve sinned and fell and therefore women are fallen. Like, yeah, that was like some messed up theology, but thankfully there's some other exceptions where, you know, the church, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the church one of the few places where women could have some authority? I mean, outside of maybe royalty? Yes, absolutely. Now, keeping in mind that most people, at least in the early Middle Ages, who were involved in the church were 
fairly high class. They were noble, um, if not royal. But yes, that would be the place that I think you find women uh, not just writing, but organizing and having having authority. I have. Um, so I had a dissertation advisor uh, who was a very um, sort of independent uh, woman. She was really qu she's quite brilliant. Uh, Barbara Hanwalt, she's written a million books and uh, people always asked her if she, you know, who she would be if she, if she lived in the Middle Ages and did she want to live in the Middle Ages? And um, surprisingly, I think most people who study the Middle Ages don't actually want to live there because <laughs> we know their reality as opposed to this sort of romantic vision. And yeah. she said, no, she didn't want to live there unless she could be the abbess of a very rich and very corrupt monastery, which I always thought was a great answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, because from your studies, especially having studied nuns in particular, <laughs> what is your impression or what does, you know, as far as the text can hint at, of how many women joined religious life simply to escape, you know, either oppression or having to bear like a dozen kids or, you know, escaping poverty or, you know, because I feel like the convents were also a place for, I mean, sometimes it's because like, okay, well, we already, you know, we paid what we could for dowry for the first few. So <laughs> like now we're going to push her somewhere else. But um, how much was it a refuge for women? And how many vocations do you think were actually just that versus like, I'm actually called by God, you know, like, because I feel like today, if people join a monastery or a convent, it's very much a personal calling. Um, and I'm curious how much that has differed over time. Well, I would say it, it, it varies always in time and place and that, uh, you know, the true calling and the practical side of it don't always have to be mutually exclusive. Hmm. Um, now, for um, much of the Middle Ages, depending on you know the order and the place and all of that people would join as children so they wouldn't necessarily have a choice in whether or not they joined and hildegard um is raised in a monastery from a young age that's pretty typical uh, and i'm sure some people really you know rebelled against that and didn't have an actual calling although that doesn't mean they didn't find sort of joy and contentment in their lives but certainly hildegard um had a true calling even though uh you know she was uh sent there for very practical purposes by her parents they had uh basically promised that they were going to give you know this particular child um you know as sort of like their their spiritual tithe to the church so they did um I think that later um, in the Middle Ages, in particularly uh, in different kinds of orders, you see women who have a genuine drive. Um, you know, Catherine of Siena would be a great example. I mean, she really didn't even have an order to join or one that was easily accessible to her. She sort of had to forge her own religious life that was how strong her calling was um and then you have other women like uh you know, claire of Sisi, who are destined for marriage you know their parents are completely against uh their having any kind of religion you know uh religious life and their calling is so strong they flee what would probably been have been a very comfortable 
aristocratic marriage uh, to you know sort of follow their their true calling. So I think it I think it varies uh, definitely. Um, there were though women who joined at all different stages of life. So certainly if you were a widow and older when you joined, it probably had a practical side to it. Like that was, you know, that was sort of a place to go. It was a place to retire, uh, but um, it could also have been a place you always looked forward to retiring, not just this is this is the best option available yeah. to you. <laughs> yeah, that makes me think of um, the Beguines who had many mystics among them. And mm -hmm. I, I feel like are pretty, um, I mean, not a lot of people know who the Beguines are or exactly what they did. Um, and I find them so fascinating. I'm curious if um, if they really are. So the Beguines, you know, are these women who kind of banded together to form this non, they weren't nuns, but they weren't, I mean, they were lay women. But I'm curious if they really were that um, extraordinary as, as they appear to be for their times and how they kind of got away with living together without this like male patronage and things that a bunch of single or widowed women were able to live on their own in the Middle Ages and become as powerful as they did. Well, I'm not really an expert on the Beguin, so I might be I might be misspeaking, but um, many of them did have sort of um, at least nominal spiritual authority of, um, you know, a male uh, confessor who worked for like a, mm. you know, a nearby monastery or church. So they weren't sort of, you know, completely on their own. They were still sort of within the system. Um, and some of them were, uh, you know, were those sort of mystics that you know attract a lot of attention you know their their um you know moments of divine union uh would be very um very extravagant you know levitation or you know i don't know stigmata or visions and so there would always be um or not always but there could be um you know, someone who would sponsor them, who would champion them. So some of the uh, begins of uh, of um, kind of the Netherlands um, attracted a lot of attention um, and received um, a lot of positive attention. But you do see that uh, begin houses of begins and um, you know and other sort of. Uh, houses of religious women kind of outside of the mainstream orders weren't always accepted um, and particularly sort of in the later middle ages uh, you know they could be sort of uh, criticized or or disbanded uh, so I, I would say they weren't always fully accepted mm -hmm. yeah yeah I find that remarkable <laughs> just yeah the audacity of so many of these mm -hmm. women to do what they felt called to do um, um and a number of them could also be self-supporting, which I think was important uh, when they were, you know, weaving, when they were producing wool, um, you know, I think that made a huge difference as well um, to how they were able to survive. Yeah, yeah, I find that so just interesting how they basically form their own little, I mean, almost like a commune or something, mm -hmm. you know, like a self-supporting, you know, they're doing their own um, kind of trades, crafts, um, yeah, that's so interesting. What would you say is your favorite either figure or event or time period to teach about? 
Oh, goodness. Uh, there are there are so many. <laughs> um, I do love uh, the Plantagenets in uh, England and France to some extent. I love uh, the period uh, sort of in the 12th and 13th century uh, with um, Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine and their, their children, um, Richard and John and Jeffrey and Matilda and Joan, uh, they were all so colorful and had such vibrant personalities. And, um, you know, there's great chronicles about them and some of their letters have survived. So I just find that to be a really fun time. And it's a time that's very much enshrined in, um, I guess, our cultural mythology. You know, we have, we have movies uh, that either take place during that period or uh, feature, uh, you know, some of the main figures. I and mean, that's Ivan, um, not Ivan Hill, Walter Scott wrote novels as where the Robin Hood legends take place. I just think that's um, a really fun time to look at. I also, um, well, there's a number of things that I really enjoy. I quite enjoy teaching about uh, medieval Scandinavia um, and uh, the Vikings um, as well. Uh, there's a lot of uh, student interest. So it's really, you know, it's always fun as a teacher when students are excited. Yes. Um, and I very much like teaching about the later Roman Empire um, and sort of the, some of the transitioning in the West uh, between, you know, sort of the Roman Empire and then later Germanic kingdoms. Um, so I guess I have a lot of a lot of teaching interests, but really, I would say many of them have been shaped by student response. Yeah, I was going to say for for students, what do you find like what? what really lights them up or brings like such a big aha that they're like, oh my gosh, this somehow impacts the way that I view the world. Well, what you were saying before um, about uh, many of us have a preconception of uh, sort of, you know, straightforward linear history and these very sort of set ideas about um, what happened when so you mentioned um you know we think that you know the church was really really bad for women until maybe very recently and it got better but it was just you know this completely oppressive thing um and you know i i think students get really interested in how that's not always true um and how you know they read about um you know sort of fascinating people who um actually found uh you know they, they found um, their voice and their creativity through Christianity in whatever form. Uh, Perpetua would be um, a great example of that. And she's um, a Roman woman um, from Carthage. And uh, she's actually one of um, really like the very few uh, women who we have, we have writings from, um, from the, the Roman empire. Um, they're, so it's that would be so rare and she was um a woman who um became a christian uh, so this is this is north africa um this is the second century i think um but i don't have my notes in front of me so i could be i could be off and uh she somehow becomes a christian even though her father isn't and she's actually imprisoned and she refuses to um to say that she's other than she is even though um her family who are quite um you know aristocratic uh they come and they beg her and she's trying to persuade her father um 
you know, why she can't um, be other than she is. And she basically looks at this container of water and says that container of water can't be anything but a container of water. So I can't be anything other than I am. And she ends up um, staying in prison. She's actually just given birth and her child is taken from her. And then she ends up dying um, in a gladiator ring uh, with uh, several other people, including um, a young slave woman who um, has also just given birth. And um, which so it's, it's somewhat of a gruesome story, but I think when you read it, what you see is that uh, this religious, um, these religious ideas have given people um, a new voice and a new authority that they didn't have. And I think for a number of, you know, students today, they wouldn't see, you know, the Christian church that way. They wouldn't see it as empowering younger people to rebel and to, you know, find authority um, because that's not, that's not their experience. You know, this was, you know, centuries upon centuries ago, uh, but it's fascinating, I think, uh, you know, when they when they see that, they see the infinite varieties of spirituality, um, the infinite varieties of identity that have occurred in the past. So mm. those are the moments that I think um, are exciting for students and then exciting for me as a teacher. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Empowering people to rebel and find authority. Um, yeah, that's that's a beautiful thing that I love finding amongst, you know, in the series on, on women mystics, as I've been reading more and more, you know, of their writings and their stories and such, just how um, bold so many of them have been and felt completely. Um, I mean, even though, you know, I'm sure they second guessed themselves and there were yeah. difficult times, but it seemed so many times that they were just fearless and speaking their mind because they knew that's what they needed to do and what what either the gospel was calling them to, or, you know, their sense of what God and this kind of divine union was calling them to. And that's a really um, beautiful thing. Another thing that strikes me as you're sharing is um, how much, just how compelling stories are. And I'm curious, because I know you also write, and I'm, I'm curious if that, if the overlap between your interest in history and your interest in writing is in story or how those um, kind of intersect. Well, certainly my interest in uh, history is is through story. Uh, and again, I think um, I share this with most of my students. Uh, many of them, I think, come to my classes because they love mythology and, you know, Norse mythology and Greek and Roman mythology. And, you know, who doesn't? Uh, it's, it's fascinating. And, you know, that's, I think, what drew me to history as well were, were stories. Um, and, you know, as we talk about in class, you know, a myth really is just a story. And so, you know, we're all, I think, drawn to the past because of uh, the amazing stories that we hear. Um, and for me, I think that really became a vocation. The only way I know how to teach history is really by, by sharing stories, um, you know, and sometimes there are stories of you know, great martyrs. Sometimes there are stories of, you know, gods and goddesses and queens. And then sometimes, um, you know, there are stories of, you know, of, of peasants or of rebellions or, or wars, or sometimes there are great individuals who, you know, left, left behind, you know, a record of themselves in their writing. But certainly that's, that's how I see uh, the past is through stories. Yeah. Yeah. I find that so, um, 
I don't know. It's just compelling how like, stories just stick with you in ways that other things don't. And I know there's something about the way that our brains are wired for that. And I'm sure just, you know, even just um, ancient history and how oral traditions and, you know, so much was bound up with story. So I find, you know, historians, um, at least the most uh, interesting ones to me are the ones who are essentially professional storytellers. <laughs> Yes. And I, I think most of us are particularly the ones that, you know, that that write for, you know, audiences that aren't just academic and also pretty much every historian who teaches, I think, has to be a storyteller. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, certainly that was that was my experience as a student. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's my experience with, you know, with my colleagues. I mean, that's how that's how we relate to others, which is probably why um, you know, I love the Middle Ages. I love the ancient world. Really, I love you know most periods. I find I find interesting, but um, I don't necessarily think of myself as a historian. I'm, I'm employed by a history department, so professionally I am. But um, you know, I'd like approaching a time period through as many ways as you can. Um, you know, I don't feel sort of bound by any particular discipline. So, um, you know, through through art and, and literature and artifacts, I mean, anything that can kind of contribute to a good story, I think, yeah. is, you know, is worth studying and talking about. Yeah, I love that. I, um, my undergrad was in humanities. And so mm -hmm. we, you know, studied in time periods. And that was the first time that I got such a holistic view of any, you know, of something happening in history to study, mm -hmm. not just, you know, the history and events and, you know, that, but the philosophy and the literature and the politics and the mm -hmm. theology and how all of those just wove together and gave you such a full picture of of what it was like in those time periods, what people were thinking, how the ideas impacted the culture. Like, I just find all of that so fascinating. Absolutely. I also, I was not a history major as an undergrad. I was a medieval and Renaissance studies major. And in fact, many of the people I work with who are sort of officially employed as historians, we were something else in our student days, you know, philosophers, art historians, and, um, you know, we we approach, I guess, yeah, the time period, uh, the the spirit of the age. Um, you know, how however however we can we can find it and find ways to relate to it. Mm, yeah. So one story that I know you're currently working on mm -hmm. is of Singrid Unset, the author of the famous trilogy about Kristen Lavrenstadter, and. I discovered, I, I knew that this was, you know, a popular book that it won a Nobel Prize in Literature, but I did not know it was one of the world's most read novels, like that it's in 80 different languages. <laughs> and I still, I have friends who have read it and loved it. It's been on one of, you know, kind of the like, someday I need to read this book, but I've never read it myself. And I'm curious, what what is so remi remarkable about this trilogy? Like, why is it so compelling? And what's remarkable about the author Singrid? Oh, goodness, where to start? There's so much. Well, I think if we start with the trilogy itself, there's a lot there. Um, if um, It's a book, I think, that ages with the reader. So it um, it's a trilogy that is about um, a woman in 14th century Norway. It begins uh, when she's a young child, and then it ends uh, with her death. Um, the first book is about mainly her her growing up and then her um 
sort of wild courtship with this incredibly unsuitable man. Um, and then they're married at the end. And then the second book is about um, their marriage and um, the many children that they have, among other things. Um, and then she dies of the plague at the very end. So um, it, there's something in it that appeals, I think, to all ages. When I first encountered uh, these books and read them. I was, I think, um, a sophomore in college, and I was just absolutely entranced by uh, the romance. I mean, there's just a fantastic romance in there. Um, a few years later, I read them, and, you know, I was really intrigued by the father-daughter relationship, because I think that things that were going on in my own life, um, I probably read them, I don't know, 10 years years later. And it was really the descriptions of motherhood that got me. I expect I'll read them in a few years and it'll be about the aging process or something else, mm. but they really grow up with the reader. And so you can read them over and over and over again. And they're still very rich and there's always something new that you get out of them. I think that is why they continue to appeal and why people love them so much because you can read a book and love it and it's great and then you never need to read it again. Um, but these are books that just stand continual readings. Yeah, I was gonna say, it almost makes me think of like, you know, the Dostoevsky of Scandinavia mm -hmm. or something, you know, where it's just so densely written. And I guess that's what good classic literature does. It just speaks to the human heart on such a deep level that it it's withstands the test of time. This is why we continue to read Shakespeare or why we read the Greek mm -hmm. tragedies or, mm -hmm. you know, British literature or, you know, different things like that, because they have such fundamental human truths, but portrayed in a story that, that, um, can continue to be unpacked. Absolutely. And um, it's nice that you mentioned Dostoevsky because a number of readers have always compared uh, Kristen Lavin's daughter, Lavin's daughter to Dostoevsky. Um, and a number of people who love her books, including myself, also love Dostoevsky, but also you know, more famous people uh, like Dorothy Day, uh, they will, will always talk about the two of them uh, together. It also does have um, an appeal significantly, I think, for Catholic readers or sort of spiritually seeking readers. Uh, when Sigurd Unset was writing those novels, she was, I think, grappling with um, her sort of burgeoning Catholic faith um, and she hadn't converted yet but she would convert shortly after writing the novels mm -hmm. so they're very much stories of um not necessarily coming to faith because the characters are you know are staunchly Catholic you know throughout the book but there's a certain uh rich sweet joy uh in faith uh that I think pervades those novels that people can find very appealing mm -hmm. yeah I'd be curious to to learn more about that um kind of the parallel between this and Dostoevsky, because I mean, Dostoevsky's works are also deeply spiritual. And, you know, I mean, I've been in plenty of theology classes, you know, where we're reading passages from Dostoevsky and such, even though, you know, he's, he intended to write literature, but he also was deeply informed by kind of this Russian mystical strain. And I'm, I'm curious if um, Singrid had, like, where she got her own spirituality from, like, what were her sources? Well, I suppose 
you know, we could ask that question of, you know, anyone, you know, where does it come from? Frequently, there's, there's no real answer. There's some kind of um, restlessness um, mm. or desire inside people that doesn't make a lot of sense. Certainly uh, with Sigrid, uh, she was not born into a particularly spiritual or religious uh, family. Her parents were fairly secular. Her uh, paternal grandparents were uh, very, they were deeply religious, but it was um, a sort of, um, I would say like a hard kind of uh, Protestantism uh, uh, that um, was very different from, you know, the sort of the religion that she later found um, and her father kind of rebelled against that. Um, so she was raised in a very secular household. You know, they celebrated Christmas. They were sort of, you know, nominally uh, Protestant as pretty much most people in Scandinavia were at the time. Um, and she, uh, there, I think she was always seeking something mm -hmm. and um, you know as and you see that in a lot of writings they don't know people don't know what they're seeking yeah. but eventually they know it when they find it even if at first they they try and run away from it um, where she first I think found at least some um, you know some of what she was looking for was deep in Norway's past um, she was very enthralled with the Middle Ages um, I mean not just because she wrote these novels but uh, her father had been an archaeologist she grew up surrounded by artifacts uh, she was sort of growing up in um, this uh, kind of a Norway that was becoming uh, politically independent for the first time in centuries. And so it was a country that was very much aware of its past and very sort of celebratory of its past. There are all these breakthroughs in archaeology. Um, so people were sort of more aware of their medieval past. Um, you know, her father worked in a museum where there was a reconstructed Viking ship that had just been discovered. So she was very interested in the Middle Ages. Um, and I think as she explored more of that, she became more intrigued by the religious traditions of the Middle Ages, which she saw as being um, an antidote to uh, cold modernism. Um, so she's growing up, um, you know, uh, in, um, you know, she's a teenager and like, she basically grows up almost with the century, you know, in the, in the 19 teens. Um, and, uh, you know, she sees, she's, you know, a young mother in World War One, and she sort of sees the destruction of, um, you know, modernism and industrialism. And in the Middle Ages, you know, true, true or not, what she finds there is this sort of, you know, beautiful romantic past where people sort of felt deeper and thought deeper and were more connected with each other and with mm. the land. And through that, uh, she came to embrace um, that spiritual uh, side of the past as well, which was a very unpopular uh, move really for her at the time. She was not uh, in a country that was uh, surrounded by Catholics or that had a strong uh, Catholic tradition. And most people didn't really understand what she was doing um, and, and found it very alien. Yeah, yeah. But that those those desires and that restlessness feels very mm -hmm. contemporary. You know, and I think that's why there is such a growing interest in, you know, the contemplative tradition and mysticism, but also it, it's like, 
it's not just this like ethereal like thing floating in the sky of but it, it's something very like gritty and earthy and embodied and you know hearing um sigrid's own interest in like connecting with each other and with the land and like living life on a deeper level like that feels um i mean just like our audience i think like a lot of us have those same desires like what does that look like to live in a way that's more connected to myself to the divine to each other to the earth yeah it feels very relevant Absolutely. She had an article that she wrote that is really interesting. It's called um, The Old Paganism. And she refers to the old, by the old paganism, she means the pre-Christian religion of Norway. And um, she sees that as almost seamlessly evolving into medieval Catholicism. She seems sees the same sort of connection to the land, connection to the spiritual um, happening. She sees, you know, sort of feast days and holidays, uh, you know, kind of evolving into each other. She doesn't see that as a break with tradition. Um, and I think in many ways she's, she's quite correct in seeing, um, you know, early, you know, kind of medieval Catholicism in Scandinavia as very much emerging out of a confluence of all sorts of different ideas. Um, but she contrasts that with, with what she calls the new paganism or the new heathenism, which is um, modernity, where you worship nothing and you believe in nothing except, you know, yourself and the money you can produce and, you know, the things that society says are good. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, what she's she's trying to get away from that and get back to, um, you know, to to this older spirit that she sees as, um, you know, as representing connection. Yeah, yeah, it just feels so much more human, you know. And that's, I'm very thankful that that's the form of of Christianity and Catholicism that I grew up with, and, and particularly in in my undergrad, understanding that. Um, it's a very incarnate um, and kind of gritty way of living that it's not, um, you know, it's not this modernity. It's the, um, it's the living of life with the rhythm of the seasons, you know, and that these, um, the rhythm of life that follows whatever, whether it's like threshing or um, planting or calving or whatever it is, you know, that, that we are living as one with, the life that's around us. And I, that's so enriching. She has some really uh, beautiful passages in various essays. Um, I know her novels are very famous, but she also wrote a lot of essays. Uh, she would probably be considered a creative nonfiction writer today. Uh, the term didn't really exist back then, but she wrote a lot of personal essays. And she talks about uh, being young and traveling with friends. And as she puts it, believing in nothing or not knowing in what to believe, but uh, going to these uh, sort of old sacred sites, like, you know, wells and lakes that had legends attached to them that, you know, were just all over the place, you know, in the, in the countryside. And still like leaving like rocks or saying a prayer because she's like, I don't know in what to believe or what to believe but I knew I had to say thank you before mm. I left mm -hmm. yeah and that's that I don't know natural spiritual inclination that we have it's like you know there's something sacred about a place and you mm. might not know what to call it but you you almost feel in, in 
I don't know, inclined, impelled to, to actually bow or, or to say thank you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to ask about um, Sigrid's contemporary, Dorothy Day, because I know that they were also friends. I mean, you shared that with me. I didn't know that previously, that they had any connection whatsoever. But in, in this upcoming um, class you'll be teaching on in the Women Mystics, um, I'm, I'm curious not only about the connection of Sigrid with Dorothy Day, but I'm also curious about how Dorothy Day fits in this whole tradition of spirituality and kind of that connection with the past. Um, I, I know there's a, a couple of different parallels between them, so I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yes, well, that's a topic that I'm very excited about. So I will say that Dorothy drew me to Sigrid or Sigrid drew me to Dorothy. I'm I'm not really sure how, how it works. Certainly, I have been reading Sigrid Unset since I was in uh, college, and then I became very intrigued by Dorothy Day, I don't know, maybe about 10 years ago, and I sort of loved them both separately before stumbling upon uh, some connections to them. Um, I had not realized that they were acquainted. I did know that they very much admired each other. So in Dorothy Day's uh, diaries, which are edited, um, I'm on my desk. So I, have a big, I have a big stack of them right here, but her diaries are edited and her letters are, a number of her letters are edited. And she recommends Kristen Lovren's daughter all the time to people, uh, particularly uh, she has a daughter, uh, Tamar Hennessy, um, and she's always uh, recommending that she uh, reads Kristen Lovren's daughter. She says it's a good antidote for for loneliness. Uh, she rereads it herself all the time, um, and uh, then they actually became um, acquainted. So Sigurd Unset was very outspoken against uh, the rise of the Nazis uh, in Germany. She had some articles uh, published that um, resulted in her books being banned in Germany. Um, they had actually been quite popular there. So then when um, the German army uh, invades Norway, uh, she's advised to flee as soon as she can, um, that she would be a person of interest. Uh, she was really, really quite popular. Um, I think it's hard. She, she's one of those figures who she is um, popular among certain people today, but she's certainly not, you know, an international best-selling author. But at the time, you could compare her to, I don't know, you know, Mar- Margaret Atwood or, uh, you know, someone like that, you know, their, their books come out and, you know, everybody's pre-ordered copies, that sort of thing. Uh, so she's a, a well-known person who uh, is not liked by this invading party. So she flees. Uh, she ends up in Brooklyn. Um, and once she's there, uh, she's, you know, sort of um, immediately introduced uh, to all these different you know, Catholic families. Um, most of them are involved in some way with Dorothy Day and the Catholic worker. Uh, so they meet a number of uh, sort of mutual friends before uh, they come together and meet each other. Um, and uh you know, in sort of recounting how this happens, you see that Sigurd Unset is a huge admirer of Dorothy Day as well. And they had a great deal in common. So you can see why they didn't just admire each other's writings, but each other's um, 
each other's lives, each other, each other as people. Dorothy Day was also not born into um, a Catholic family or even a religious family at all. She, like Sigurd Unset, converted as an adult. Um, both of them, um, well, really for both women, their conversion coincided with the breakup of romantic relationships. Uh, for Dorothy Day, it was more sort of immediately connected. Uh, the man that she was in love with, Forster Batterham, who was the father of her child, um, just despised uh, religion. He didn't want, um, you know, he didn't want to be in a relationship with her if she was Catholic. And also once she converted, she felt she couldn't live with him without being married and he didn't want to want to get married. So uh, her conversion sort of was the beginning of the end of that relationship, which was uh, deeply painful for her. Uh, something very similar happened with Sigurd Unset. Um, she um, left her husband shortly before writing the Kristen Lovren's Daughter books, hoping that they would reconcile. But um, in the process, she converted to Catholicism and they they drifted apart and basically had their had their marriage annulled. Um, and so both of them had sort of lost a lot of a lot of love in their lives. And it was connected with, you know, some of their their greater spiritual seeking. Um, but I think both both also realized that in pursuing love that brought them greater to their uh, that brought them further to their calling as well. So they had a great deal in common. Uh, Dorothy Day even uh, speaks in her diaries about reading Kristen Lovren's daughter uh, when her relationship is breaking up, but when she is first sort of learning about the beauty of the sacraments. So I think their their lives and their stories were very much bound together, even though they both didn't meet until you know they were they were much older and they were only ever able to meet a few times because they were so incredibly busy it was you know it was uh world war ii um and Sigrid unset gets to brooklyn before the u.s has entered the war but i mean you know the war is on everybody's mind all the time um and they're both you know always speaking always writing always going on these public tours they just did not have a lot of time to meet. But when they did meet, it's very clear that they impacted each other uh, very much. Um, you know, and they write these sort of descriptions of each other and letter letters to other people about how sort of, you know, beautiful and memorable the other woman was. Um, and they, you know, speak about the importance of, um, you know, their respective writings. Mm. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting story. You can follow it mainly in, letters that they wrote in different archives to each other and then to other people about them. Um, you can see it just in little glimpses here and there, um, you know, in, in you know, published diaries and things like that. But I think it's, you know, it's fascinating that they did intersect and influence each other that way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really um, looking forward to your, your class on, on Dorothy Day because she's such a, um, complex woman like i love that she loved like cultured things and literature i mean she was you know not only her love for like kristen lovren's daughter but you know she frequently quoted dostoevsky and she loved the opera and classical music and art and all these things yet at the same time she she lived amongst the poor and wore donated clothes and was constantly battling like bed bugs and you know like all these things that and and was this like profoundly 
active, you know, I mean, political and social activist, she was a pacifist, all of those things. But um, you have all of those elements. And then her early life as like a bohemian and, you know, a journalist and all of those um, aspects, along with, you know, having multiple lovers in her life. And I mean, just, I feel like it's not the typical story of, of a saint or a mystic that you get, you know, that she had such a um, mixed life, you know, hung out with anarchists, had an abortion when she was younger, was a single mom. Um, and I, I'm curious what kind of um, teasers you would like to leave with our audience about maybe, you know, two or three things that you find remarkable about Dorothy Day and especially her spirituality, because I think we talk a lot about what she did kind of externally and in, in her activism, but not as much is said, or at least as well known about her, her own spirituality. All right. Well, I would say that um, when we do think about uh, saints or, you know, in her case, people who are sort of, you know, uh, possibly going to, to be saints, then uh, we don't think about them as uh, very entrenched within a family. I don't know that that's accurate. I mean, Catherine of Siena was very much entrenched in her family, but Dorothy Day was a mother and a grandmother actively the whole time she was doing uh, her works of mercy um, and, you know, working with the Catholic worker and um, also, um, you know, sort of devoting herself to her spiritual life and becoming a mother and then later a grandmother was intrinsic to her spirituality. It was uh, her pregnancy with her daughter Tamar that made her in the end decide uh, truly to become a Catholic. So motherhood is what led to her uh, conversion. And then the other teaser I would leave out is um, maybe it's a message of comfort for people, but she accomplished so much and she's, you know, a paragon of uh, so many wonderful things, spirituality, social activism. She means a lot to so many people, but she was conflicted and tormented uh, pretty much her, her entire life. Uh, she never thought she did enough. Uh, she never thought she was necessarily doing the right thing. She questioned herself all the time. Uh, she uh, lived with um, uncertainty and doubt, um, even as she believed in her calling. So I think that is probably a reassuring and an intriguing uh, message for people. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for that. It's, it's wonderful to have um, modern day mystics or at least ones that are still accessible in modern memory because mm -hmm. um it's so easy to just get the um kind of cleaned up sterile versions the the hagiographies of the saints or mystics of the past where they're kind of just cast in marble and set on a shelf somewhere like oh we should all be like hildegard but to see their complexity i mean sometimes you can access that through their writings but sometimes you really only have the revised versions mm -hmm. so it's nice to have these modern ones where you're like oh you're like me like you were kind of a hot mess sometimes <laughs> you know and so that's um i don't know find i find that encouraging um, when looking at modern day mystics I agree. And I think one of Dorothy Day's talents was that she could find that messiness in the lives of past saints and mystics. Like she was very good at, say, looking at, um, you know, very sanitized uh, stories about Catherine of Siena or, uh, you know, uh, Trace of Avia and uh, 
you know, finding the domestic and the familiar. I think that was one of her, her great talents was she herself was accessible, but she made other holy figures accessible as well. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Well, wonderful. Well, I'm very looking forward to, to our conversation and to the class coming up. Um, if anyone listening is, is interested in joining us, you can learn more at womenmystics.org and come hear Laura Michelle's class on Dorothy Day, and we'll have other mystics coming up throughout the rest of the year. Um, Laura Michelle, is there anything that you would like to leave with our audience today? Oh, goodness. Um, no, I'm just, I'm very delighted to be able to uh, speak about people who are, you know, near and dear to me, um, even though, you know, I don't, I never knew them, um, but I've been lucky enough to be able to encounter them uh, through books. Um, and I will maybe recommend one book. If you don't come to my class, that's completely fine. But if you are interested in Dorothy Day, her granddaughter wrote a memoir of her, as well as uh, her mother, Dorothy's daughter, uh, Tamar, um, Tamar Batterham Hennessy. And I would say that's probably the best introduction to Dorothy Day that you will be be able to to get uh, because her granddaughter remembers uh, you know Dorothy the activist uh, the speaker the writer but also uh, the grandmother the fully human figure uh, so I would highly recommend that book as a way to get to know her more yes yes I just started that a few weeks ago mm -hmm. and I it's been great it's wonderful having those those firsthand accounts and such a personal um, connection to someone that we only know kind of historically. Mm -hmm. So yeah, wonderful. Well, I'm so looking forward to it. And I, I appreciate all of your stories today about powerful and interesting women throughout history and their roles and um, kind of filling out and fleshing out that picture uh, for us in their stories. So thank you so much for that. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed myself. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you everyone for joining us and for tuning in.